Good afternoon, everybody. Sound okay? Yeah. So this afternoon, I'm gonna talk a bit about the heart center. And I wanna start by mirroring uh, some of the instruction that Eugene gave yesterday with the talk about the body center. So inspired by uh, his instruction, I want to encourage you to continue as we engage in this speaking and listening together to stay grounded, present in the body you have almost uh, two full days of practice momentum behind you. And so really inviting you to, um, sometimes when we are listening to words, the energy and attention goes up into the head. And so inviting you to keep yourself grounded in your seat, or if you're standing or lying down, wherever you are. And to add to the instruction from yesterday about staying aware of, connected to, intimate with these physical, somatic, kinesthetic, these great words that Eugene used, this physical, somatic, kinesthetic presence that's sitting in your seat. Adding to that, as we added to the instruction today, the awareness of the heart. So as the talk unfolds, also inviting you to um, really just be aware of how do the words, the sentences, the images, the stories, poems, examples, etc., how do they land in the heart? Again, so not so much thinking about or trying to figure out or understand, but I had the image earlier of imagining that the heart itself, this heart center, is like a bell and then noticing how do the words of the talk resonate? How does the bell itself ring, if you will? How do you or when do you feel touched or irritated or inspired or melancholic, confused or bored or delighted? Just really, you don't have to do anything. So we've been saying, you don't have to make any of this happen. But just kind of opening your awareness to pay attention to the affective flavor or tone of how you are impacted, how the heart in particular is impacted 
by what's being said. So I want to open the talk with a poem. And this is a great place to practice noticing what, what lands, what rings, what resonates for you. This is a poem by Mary Oliver called Spring. She says, somewhere a black bear has just risen from sleep and is staring down the mountain. All night in the brisk and shallow restlessness of early spring, I think of her, her black fists, flicking the gravel, her tongue like a red fire, touching the grass, the cool water. There is only one question. There is only one question. How to love this world? I think of her rising like a black and leafy hedge to sharpen her claws against the silence of the trees. Whatever else my life is, with its poems and its music and its glass cities, it is also this dazzling darkness coming down the mountain, breathing and tasting all day I think of her, her white teeth, her wordlessness, her perfect love. There is only one question how to love this world. And as you know, it's not so easy. We live in a beautiful, difficult, broken, extraordinary world. A world that may cause our heart to break open again and again. This is true for us individually. I heard a lot of heartbreak today in the groups that met. It's also true for us collectively as a species finding so much difficulty just to get along so much divisiveness, hatred, confusion, oppression, ignorance. And our, our planet, that wide aching world, suffering the extremes of climate, So how, how in the face of so much dukkha, how do we love this world?
I don't exactly have an answer, but I hope that by sharing some reflections uh, this afternoon about, in a way, really what what's meant by love in Buddhism and Buddhist teaching, that it will help us lean into the question to discover what it means to love the world, to love ourselves, each other, to love, to love each moment, <laughs> whether we like it or not, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, and really to understand what that means. Because in, in Buddhist teaching, love itself, it's not, it's not exactly an emotion, you know, in a maybe hallmark kind of way that we think of it, in, at least in American culture. That love is a, a kind of sweet pink feeling that arises in response to something. In Buddhist teaching, we come to see that love is actually something much, much deeper and subtler and more profound than that. So I want to start by uh, giving a little bit of context and understanding of uh, Buddhist psychology that describes how it is that each moment, each moment of being a human being, alive, awake, that we are being <laughs> barraged by sensory input. Another way to say that is we are, we are sentient. We are deeply sensitive beings. And we are sensitive through our senses, through our seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching. And in Buddhist psychology, the mind is also understood as a sense organ. We are sensitive to our thoughts, our feelings, our ideas, our beliefs. And as I think has been said in the uh, Eastern traditions, the heart-mind is, is actually understood as one thing. Eugene described it the other night as citta, C-I-T-T-A, that's the Pali. It's also in the sort of Sino-Japanese, it's the, the Shin, S-H-I-N, the heart-mind. And the heart-mind that receives all of this flood of input moment by moment uh, takes it in and uh, receives it as one of three flavors. This is it's very simple and quite, when we start to recognize this in ourselves, it can be very powerful to begin to see. So the three flavors are pleasant, unpleasant, and what's called neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neutral experience. And this is important to begin to notice that we have pleasant and unpleasant and neutral experiences in the body, in the heart, in the mind, in our seeing, in our hearing, in our smelling, in our tasting, in our touching, in our all of that. 
And the reason that it's important to notice this, this is what's called Vedana, which is the second foundation of mindfulness in the text, the Satipatthana Sutta that Eugene was reading from yesterday. And this Vedana is important to notice, to pay attention to, because without mindfulness, the the phenomena, the truth of Vedana, of pleasant and unpleasant in particular, means (laughs) that we are kind of in a constant state of reactivity. It's very simple in a way. Pleasant experience arises any through any sense door. A pleasant sight, a pleasant sound, a pleasant thought, like that. And we lean in. We, we, we want to grab on, hold on, keep. We want more. This is greed. Wanting. Clinging. And when we have unpleasant experience, when we experience unpleasant sights, sounds, etc., then we do the opposite. We lean away. We feel aversion, dislike. I don't like it. I don't want it. Get it away from me. We judge. We clench. We turn away. All of that. And then with neutral neither pleasant or unpleasant, these are experiences that in large part we uh, kind of ignore, we miss. If something isn't loud enough with a, with a particular pleasant or unpleasant um, valence, then often we, we would just call it boring. We miss it. So this sets, our, sets us up again without the addition of mindfulness for a life in which we are constantly at the tug and pull of wanting and not wanting, pleasant and unpleasant. And we can feel and see this in a kind of crude way in our daily lives, how we are constantly moving toward what we want and trying to get away from what we don't want. And let me say that it's not in itself a bad thing. It's okay (laughs) to want pleasant experience. It's okay to move away from unpleasant experience, but as a strategy for happiness, it is uh, doomed. Because every moment, this flood of experience is bringing you more. And in order, if, if we aren't mindful of what's happening, we're in this constant, I experience as a kind of reverb, Wanting, not wanting, liking, not liking, like this. And sometimes we can feel that in a very intense kind of gross swings. And at least for me, when I sit and begin to get quiet, I can see how even very fine, oh, that was a good breath, want. Oh, that wasn't, I didn't like that sound, pull away. Even in a very subtle way, there's this, kind of constant flickering, this lack of peacefulness, of settledness, of here-ness. Now, the good news is that when we bring our mindfulness to this 
ongoing situation, we have the opportunity to see our circumstances fresh. We can see and feel and experience the unpleasant without the rejection, without the pushing away, without the judgment. We can see the pleasant experience or experiences and thoroughly enjoy them without grabbing on, throwing ourselves off balance. It's for those who haven't practiced in some way, this it's very subtle actually. Because most of us just believe that if I could just get what I wanted and get away from my, what I don't want, then I'd be happy. And it takes some, some uh, what did Eugene call it? This is some discernment, some wisdom to begin to see the flaw in that logic. It works so, sort of. But this practice, the practice of mindfulness is pointing us toward the possibility of a different kind of happiness, of a different kind of peace that isn't conditioned, that isn't based on the pleasant and unpleasant experiences that are flooding our way 24-7. That we can find our seat, that we can find our place, that we can relax with whatever's happening. This is particularly true with difficult experience. Again, Eugene mentioned the hindrances this morning, which are an often really common, normal part of entry into a retreat. And that the key with any hindrance or difficult state of heart, of mind, of body, is that we're looking not so much to change what's happening, but to change our relationship to what's happening. This is a profound shift. And here's the thing. When we begin to practice this way, it's not only that we get off the the kind of jagged reverb that is part of the habit body, that's part of the habit heart, It's part of the habit mind. But there's something else, which is that when we meet our experience with mindfulness, and I would actually describe this as a kind of loving awareness, with a mindfulness that is open, tender, kind, with a quality of intimacy, of being able to stay very close rather than grabbing and pushing away. When we meet our experience in this way, the experience transforms. It opens. The moments of experience that we um, kind of in a knee-jerk way describe in our habit as pleasant or unpleasant it, the moment itself reveals itself as so much more. This is um, 
this revealing, it's the, the word revelation, that we see, we see more, we feel more. The world and our experience of the world itself opens in new ways. So our circumstances may or may not change, but our relationship to them changes. And that changes everything. So I'm going to read a second poem. Uh, This is from Billy Collins. And he speaks about this uh, in both uh, poignant and humorous way. And uh, the poem's called Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. And he's describing how it is that when we pay close attention, that irritating, annoying, difficult, painful experiences can make this kind of turn, can open, can be seen fresh with new eyes. He says, the neighbor's dog will not stop barking. (laughs) I see Joe with a beautiful little beautific dog on his uh, picture. But this barking dog is the, the, uh, you all have your version of a barking dog. That nagging pain in your knee, that uh, um, irritation you feel towards someone, that whatever it is, that mental spin that keeps playing over and over in the mind. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must must switch him on, on their way out. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast. This is our strategies, right? I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. (laughs) Here's the turn, right? When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo. That endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. Can we meet our own internal barking? Whatever those irritants are, maybe internal, maybe external, maybe both. 
Can we meet them with respectful silence? Respect means to look again, rather than just our kind of knee-jerk habitual, you know, (laughs) plug our ears, turn on the music. And when we do this, we have this opportunity, as he writes so beautifully and humorously, to have, I don't know how it happens. There's some combination of magic and mystery, but when we're really there for our life, for these moments, even the difficult moments, maybe especially the difficult moments in our life, our life will open it will be revealed to us in ways (laughs) that are often very surprising. I have a barking dog. Some of you heard my dog barking earlier in the group today when the doorbell rang, barking, barking, barking. Yeah. And we all have our version of that kind of experience in our lives, in our bodies, in our hearts, that we are invited to learn how to relate to in through, through using our mindfulness in a way that transforms what's here. Doesn't get rid of it, it changes it. It reveals it with fresh eyes. So this is sort of the fundamental aspect of our engaging with our heart, with our experience, shifting out of this habitual reactivity to uh, an attitude, a perspective of meeting our experience with openness, with curiosity, with kindness, Some of you know that in the traditional teachings, there is a kind of parallel, the teachings of mindfulness and the teachings of what are called the Brahma Viharas, these four heavenly abodes, metta, karuna, mudita, upekka, loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. These are understood to be innate qualities of the heart which can also be actively cultivated because we so often, the the untrained, the unmindful mind will just tilt (laughs) toward the negative. It will tilt toward noticing consistently what's wrong. You may have a mind like this. You may have noticed a mind like this, the judging mind that is constantly saying to you some version of not good enough, not okay, bad. And so it can be helpful to intentionally turn our attention to notice these qualities of heartfulness that are also here. We don't cultivate these qualities out of nothing. We're basically just watering seeds that are already present. And in the context of this retreat, 
we're not so much engaging with the formal practice of the Brahma Viharas, but we are inviting this, it's like an, an attitude of kindness into, to infuse our mindfulness. We're inviting an attitude of compassion when our mindfulness meets difficulty, sadness, pain. We're inviting this willingness to enjoy, to be happy, to find pleasure when our mindfulness meets enjoyment, contentment, peace. And we infuse our mindfulness with this quality of equanimity, which is a kind of steadfastness, a kind of poise and balance. It's like the ability to keep going because each moment keeps coming. <laughs> you may have noticed, we don't just sort of get to cruise control and then just roll on. No, then there's the next moment and then the next moment. And we spend so much time, this kind of reorientation that I talked about the first night, we, we are so kind of fiercely oriented toward the content of our awareness. And what we're cultivating here really is a quality of awareness, a quality of mindfulness that's infused with these qualities of heart, of heartfulness. I think it's worth saying a word or two here about the phenomena that probably many of you are uh, become intimate with here, uh, what's sometimes called the inner critic or the judging mind. The judging mind is in some ways the opposite of what I'm describing. It's the mind that doesn't meet our experience with kindness or compassion or enjoyment or poise and balance. It's the mind that's constantly going, you know, wrong, wrong, imperfect, not good enough. You may find some solace as I do in knowing that the Buddha also grappled with this the inner critic, it's like, a, it's like an energy in our psyches. And my best understanding so far of this energy is that its primary job is to keep us small. It wants to keep us safe. It wants to keep us in our familiar known box. And if there's anything that we're doing when we come on retreat, it's giving ourselves a little space you know, moving the edges of that tight little sense of self that we strap ourselves into, giving that a little bit of breathing room. And so it's natural, it's normal that this critical voice will show up. And I say voice because it's often how it's talked about, but in the context of this retreat, I think it's really important to say that this 
this energy, this energetic phenomena, it's not just a voice. It shows up in the mind. It also shows up in the heart. It shows up as a kind of, uh, I give up kind of feeling. I can't do it. A deflation. So you might notice it saying to you, that was stupid, or you're never going to get it right. But you also just might notice like, I don't know, I don't really want to sit. That's a hint. There may be innate, unobserved criticism or assumption of how you're supposed to be at play. And the same in the body. That critical energy can show up not just as words or as emotion. It can also show up just as tension, as a kind of gripping or holding. So all of these ways are can that the, this critical voice shows up can become part of our mindfulness. This was the Buddha's basic way of engaging. Some of you know there's a kind of personification of this quality called Mara. And the Buddha would notice this arising and say, I know you, Mara. I know you, Mara. And when it got really bad, it's described that the Buddha reached down and touched the earth. So you too can work with including the awareness of this critical voice is critical, the impact of that in your heart and in your body by your awareness, by bringing your awareness. And when it gets really rough, you too can, can understand for yourself, what does it mean to reach down and touch the earth? What does it mean to land fully in my body, to allow myself to be supported by the ground here? If we don't catch on to the many um, gross and subtle ways that this critical voice can infuse our mindfulness, I don't know about you, but for me, I felt like I just don't want to continue. Like, who wants to do that? But we can become aware of it in a way that allows us a little breathing room, a little separation. Sometimes I think, and it certainly has been true for me in my own practice, that there's so much emphasis on the, the intellect, the wisdom side of waking up, seeing clearly. And all of that is important, beautiful, essential. But it, it needs to be met and um, uh, integrated with this heartfulness. There's a story about um, Dogen Zenji, who was the founder of Soto Zen. He was a great 13th century Japanese awakened 
monk, scholar, poet. And it said that as, as he was um, dying and he was preparing to pass his mantle on to his kind of best student, that the student who was the most obvious to receive this um, kind of blessing from his teacher was a guy named Tetsu Gikai, who was in my language, kind of a smarty pants. And uh, when they had a meeting, uh, Dogen said to him, you know, you have full deep understanding of the teachings of the Dharma, enormous insight into emptiness and so on, but I can't pass on the teaching to you because you're missing what he called Robai Shin. He called grandmotherly mind. And it's that grandmotherly mind, and it's what we're infusing our mindfulness with. That the soft hands, the kind eyes. Some of you have heard me describe my grandmother who used to come visit, who would uh, pinch my cheek when I was a little girl and say, in Yiddish, and then she would say, tell me everything. That's grandmotherly mind. It's the mindfulness that's willing to be here and to listen to everything, to each moment of our experience. And when we're willing to be with ourselves in that way, transformation happens. You don't have to try to make it happen. It happens on its own. <laughs> I like the story of uh, George Washington Carver, who was a, he lived in the South to enslaved parents. And he grew up as a sickly child and he was had this amazing capacity to heal plants. They called him the little plant doctor. And when someone asked him once how he was able to take these sort of sick and dying plants and bring them back to health, what's your secret, little George? You know, he said, when you listen to things and love them, they will reveal themselves to you. This is the essence of this teaching of heartfulness is listening with love. And when we meet our own experience, when we listen to our own body, heart, mind, and when we extend that out and we listen to each other and the world with love, then the world itself becomes revelation. Our moments open. So how do we love this world? One of the things that can happen as we practice 
in this way, as we deepen in this way, is we begin to see that it's not so much that I love it, but we begin to see in a more unified way that it's tricky language, but I'm going to try it anyway, that love itself is what everything is made of. That love is the fabric that holds, that connects. When we look through the wisdom eye, we may see the truth of emptiness. We may see the truth that nothing is solid or substantial. When we see through the eye of the heart, when we see with the eyes of love, we see that everything is connected, that we are part of a living web and that this isn't a metaphor. It's actually true. And this isn't something that you can understand with the thinking mind. It's something that as we practice, as we practice with this robai shin mind, this grandmotherly mind, as we do the slow and steady, tender work of meeting each of our own moments, that this is what is revealed. This is what we can discover for ourselves. So I want to uh, close with uh, another short poem. And it occurred to me when I read this poem, it's sort of the, or found this poem, that it's sort of the perfect complement to the first two, because it's, a, it's called um, Little Dog's Rhapsody in the Night. So it's a complement to the dog, barking dog story, but it's also a poem by Mary Oliver, and it's kind of a, a love poem to her little dog. And it occurred to me as I was reading the poem that in a way you could understand this poem as her answer to her own question. There is only one question, how to love this world. So here's how. She describes it. Little Dog's Rhapsody in the Night. He puts his cheek against mine and makes small expressive sounds. And when I'm awake or awake enough, he turns upside down his four paws in the air his eyes dark and fervent. Tell me you love me, he says. Tell me again. Could there be a sweeter arrangement? Over and over, he gets to ask. I get to tell. So let's sit together for a few moments.
Taking a few breaths in and out of the heart, the heart center. Just noticing what's present, what's here, what's true for you now. And can you receive it with this quality of robaishin, this loving awareness, whatever it is? He puts his cheek against mine and makes small expressive sounds. And when I'm awake or awake enough, he turns upside down, his four paws in the air and his eyes dark and fervent. Tell me you love me, he says. Tell me again. Could there be a sweeter arrangement? Over and over, he gets to ask. I get to tell. Thank you very much for your kind attention. And please continue making your best effort with kindness, steadfastness to uh, meet what's here in all of the various ways that the moment arrives. Thank you very much.